0: Well, thank you all for coming tonight to Ada's Books, and I want to welcome audience, in-person audience, hello everybody, thank you for coming out, it's a beautiful night, and thank you for coming inside where it's nice and cool. And uh, we are also live streaming, and then some of you will be listening to this later as a podcast. Uh, I'm Glenn Fleischman, I'm a Seattle-based journalist who contributes regularly to The Economist and Macworld, Fast Company and other publications, and I love tiny satellites, and also planets and things like that. And I have here tonight a special guest, also a local person, Alan Boyle. He wrote the book, The Case for Pluto, and he's the science editor at uh, NBC News Digital uh, and is here tonight to talk about Pluto because we're getting close to a very special moment in the
1: history of humanity, I would say, right? Right, right. Uh, it isn't very often that people get their first look at a new frontier. You can think about the first probes to go to Mars, for example, to fly by, uh, like the Mariner probes, and uh, see what Mars was really like. Or you can talk about Voyager that went through uh, through inter- interplanetary space and saw Uranus and Neptune for the first time. And uh, we've got another moment like that coming up. It could be the last moment in our lifetimes like this, where we're seeing something, a type of celestial object that we've not seen before. And this is an icy dwarf. And uh, uh, an icy dwarf that's familiar to a lot of us is Pluto. Uh, used to be the ninth planet. It's not the ninth planet anymore, that's for sure, because we have found a lot of other objects out on the rim of the solar system. And so we used to think that Pluto was a lonely little object out there. Now we know that Pluto has cousins out on the solar system's rim and some people think that means that Pluto isn't a planet anymore because there are other things that are like it and kind of been the same neck of the woods. But uh, as I lay out uh, the argument in the case for Pluto, uh, it's a dwarf planet. It's a, it's a planet that has a lot of the characteristics that we, we associate with planethood. Uh, it's just smaller, and it's in uh, an interesting region of space. And so, uh, the case for Pluto can be boiled down to five words: dwarf planets are planets too. <laughs> and I, I think we're going to see that uh, with this fantastic mission that's that's coming up in just a couple of weeks, as we speak here. It's going to be exactly two weeks from today. Uh, the New Horizons mission, and it's been more than nine years in the making and that we're just talking about how long it's been flying. It was launched in 2006 and uh, it's going to be flying right past Pluto uh, at an incredible speed, taking pictures as it goes and storing them up on its computer and then over the year that follows (laughs) Pluto uh, is going to be having its uh, close-up uh, thanks to the pictures that are being sent back from New Horizons. And it all is already starting. We're, we're already seeing unprecedented views of Pluto and its biggest moon, uh, Charon. And we'll see more and more as the days go on and as the months go on. We'll be having these fantastic pictures of the type of world we've never seen before, before coming down and uh, coming to a computer or a smartphone near you. So, I have to get a show of hands, how many people are Pluto is planet people?
0: Oh my gosh, not very many. How many is Pluto is not a planet people? Interesting, and some, and some people have not made up their minds. Either. Good, good. Uh,
1: I, I think uh, whether you're a, not a planet or is a planet person, I, I think it's good if you're not completely set in your lens, because we're learning so much about exoplanets and about uh, the fringes of our own solar system that... I think it's way premature to make any sort of decision about what sort of universe we live in.
0: Well, so here's the the thing that came up for me. The minute we started to find other things that were Pluto-like in our solar system, um, it seemed like, what what was the changeover? Was there new technology? Were there new ways of determining things? Because it seemed to happen sort of, you know, quickly. Suddenly there were a few, and then now it's the, the universe of that could be, is it billions? There could be enormous untold numbers in the Kuiper Belt, and then in the Oort cloud beyond that mm-hmm. um, that would be
1: Pluto-ish. Actually, not that many. Not that many oh, are that as category, big okay. as, as Pluto because uh, people know dynamically how much mass there is in the Kuiper Belt. And there's not enough mass to make a lot of objects as big as Pluto. But the thing that really turned the tide and, and kind of flipped over the paradigm was the discovery of this object, uh, which was thought to be Uh, larger than Pluto. It turns out that it's about the same size and diameter as Pluto but it's more massive and uh, a guy named Mike Brown at Caltech and his colleagues found uh, that in uh, 2005 or so and uh, they knew that they were going to come across something like this if they kept looking long enough and so they, they joked That okay, this is kind of a planet X sort of thing. And so they nicknamed this hypothetical planet Xena, as in Xena (laughs) the Real Princess. And so that's that's how this world was known when it was first found.
0: You know what's confusing? If you have small children, you get books on space, we have like a 20-year span of books now, and uh, so the oldest ones say Pluto's a planet, then it transitions this weird (laughs) thing. Xena shows up as a name. There's one book we have that is four. Pluto like planets in it labeled, but they're not the names that were ultimately clarified. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the later books have sort of moved into the new realm of how things are being discussed. But it's, it's like very going confusing the for Geological
1: children. Yeah, like but confusing ecology. for
0: children. Like the children are like, there are nine planets or 13 or eight. It's a very confusing period to have been a child.
1: Yeah, yeah. Numbers, I don't think you should focus on the numbers mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, just like uh, we don't know, you know, who knows how many mountains there are how many rivers. Uh, there might be. 13 uh, planets if you are liberal in how you define them. There might be 1300 if you're even more liberal, uh, just depending on what we're going to find over the next few decades or centuries or or whatever. But uh, Xena ended up being called Eris, E-R-I-S, which is uh, Greek goddess of discord. And there was a lot of discord over that. Uh, They knew what they were doing when they named uh, Eris what, what they did. And uh, that, you know, we're, we're going through ancient history now, back in 2006. But uh, that led uh, some of the astronomers with the uh, International Astronomical Union to try to come up with this definition for what a planet is. We can, we can get into the nitty-gritty of that if, if, if you want. But uh, for me, I don't... Uh, some people get really upset. You, you, you just can't believe the sorts of... Uh, things that you stir up some people are just so adamant that no it cannot be a planet uh because the iau said so and other people say no it's a planet and uh IAU was full of crap and uh, I, I don't uh, get polarized in that way i think uh, if you call it a dwarf planet you're not going to offend anybody uh, everyone uh everyone acknowledges that's what these things are is dwarf planets and so if anyone ever asks you well if pluto isn't a planet What is it? You can say, well, it's a dwarf planet, and dwarf planets are planets too. Why do
0: people care so much about the definition, though? It's still the same thing, right? Or does it change the way in which it's studied, or the fields, or the subspecialties that study it?
1: Well, that's a good question. I mean, the people who wanted to come up with this organizational chart for uh, celestial objects kind of felt like it was important to distinguish between the objects that have a gravitational effect on everything else and the objects that don't. Uh, When they are doing their study, they kind of turn the dials so that all I have to worry about are these big things when when I see how a planetary system is put together. I don't need to worry about these little things. I can just think of them as a belt of stuff. Uh, Whereas, that stuff is very important to planetary scientists who are trying to figure out how each individual item is, is put together if you look at Pluto Pluto by mass is mostly rock uh, it has a lot of ice and so people think of it as an ice ball but it's a differentiated object it uh, it may have uh, ice volcanoes uh, there there may be enough tectonic activity going on there that that uh, things are coming up from the surface of Pluto. It's known that Pluto has clouds, it has changing weather patterns. Uh, There's talk now with the the New Horizons uh, images of a dark pole on Charon, the moon of of Pluto, and what is that thing? So there's gonna be a lot of questions raised as uh, New Horizons reaches its climax, and a lot of mysteries that I'm sure we're going to be talking about for months to come.
0: Well, let's talk moons, too. Is I didn't realize until just recently, I don't think I've been following the uh, cosmological developments, that there are five known moons of Pluto you now that have they've been identified. That's uh, And they all have their names like Nix and all these great... Nyx un- and Hydra. All the, all the underworld names. Nix and Perberos, you know,
1: <laughs> The first, Perfect. first moon to be named after a rock band. <laughs> <laughs>
0: or a security standard. for that matter. Uh, But the so but there's uh, some speculation. There could be more moons, though, still, right? As it
1: gets closer to the moon. That's what they're more? afraid of, because you don't <laughs> <laughs> run to run into a moon when you're going 30,000 miles an hour. Uh, but uh, they, again, I, I mentioned the dynamical characteristics of a system, and Pluto is kind of like a mini solar system. And so they know that the moons can only be in certain areas, in certain orbits. And they're pretty sure that uh, they've determined the way that Pluto and its moons are put together they're going to be going through an area in the Plutonian system where where they're not going to run into a moon or a ring. They've seen no evidence of rings. That was something that people were talking about in the months uh, leading up to this encounter that maybe Pluto has rings of material like Saturn or Uranus, but uh, it
0: apparently doesn't. Well, and I I also thought uh, our vision of Pluto in not that distant past was very simple. It was a cold, uh, dead planet probably all covered in ice and nothing much going on there. It has a moon and the moon's very large by Mm -hmm. moon standards and they've got some kind of relationship, but that's it. And now it's like, no, you're talking all these things. It may have ice volcanoes, it's more complicated. You've got five moons. Suddenly it turns into a much more interesting thing and we're about to be there and see up close what what actually makes it up.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, like I say, this is probably the last mission of its kind until we start going to other stars that that this is a a type of frontier uh, where you don't get very often. And so we have to make the most of this visit that we can. After Pluto, uh, New Horizons is going to go on. They have a couple of other Kuiper Belt objects. The Kuiper Belt is this big icy ring uh, that is outside the orbit of Neptune. And so uh, NASA wanted to get a, a good bang for its buck. And so, yeah, it's it's great to study Pluto, but what else have you done for us lately? <laughs> so they have a couple of potential targets uh, figured out. And after the Pluto mission winds down, then they'll go back to NASA and say, hey, we've got these other interesting things that we can show you. So more money, please.
0: So the Kuiper Belt is full of, um, it, it's. so you're saying it, it, has, it uh, doesn't have that many objects that are Pluto scale, but it yeah. has an enormous number potentially enormous mm-hmm. number of objects it's very difficult for us to know that right this is the thing that's interesting is I think we have a vision we can see the Hubble lets us see these amazing things uh, you know vastly distant in space we can look back practically to the beginning of time uh, to the beginning of the universe or as far back as we uh, you know as close then as possible with uh, uh, x-ray telegraphy or uh, uh, sorry telescopes and so forth but um, but something that seems really close the Kuiper belt's right there it's just past or just around Pluto why can't we see into that and know what's there from Earth?
1: Yeah, they're very dim objects. One of the questions you asked before was, uh, what is it that has led us to discover these new things out there? And uh, we're getting better telescopes, mm-hmm. and we're also getting better computational tools to figure out where these things are and what they're made of, how, how they move. Uh, it was back in 1930 that Clyde Tombaugh Uh, discovered Pluto and uh, just last week I spoke with Clyde's uh, daughter and his son uh, about this and and I'll be writing about this for NBC News uh, next week but um, what Clyde did was he had two photographic plates taken at different times and he had to flip between those photographic plates and eyeball it and try to see okay there's something that's moving between these two plates and how much has it moved, and, and if you do the calculations by seeing how much it has moved over what time, you can figure out how far away it is, and, and that was the thing that led to Pluto's discovery. Now they've got computers to do it. You just kind of feed in the imagery at the end of the day, you know, let the computers work on it overnight, and then come back the next morning and, and see what you got. And that's how uh, a lot of these uh, other dwarf planets, like Eris, Haumea, Makemake, uh, were found. And so that's one thing that has really revolutionized planetary study is the computational tools. I've been doing some
0: research recently into uh, and there's been a lot of coverage of it lately of deep learning and computer the new techniques in computer vision or really restored It was almost discredited 1990s technology that turned out once you had enough computational power and you had massive training sets, images that you could teach the algorithm, these neural nets what was going on, you actually could get remarkable results. And that's why everything is, everything is now deep learning. And, and uh, I think it applies to, um, to space as well, is that yeah. you have massive yeah. amounts of information, you have people willing to tag stuff. Mm-hmm. The important part is training. And then you have uh, satellites, computational power, and training sets. Suddenly you can
1: find a lot more than you used to. You let the right. computers churn yeah. on it. And it's a blend of human power and computer power there are a couple of projects, one is called planethunters.org and there's another ice hunters I think, something like that where you have humans look at these uh, images, kind of doing something similar where you're you're looking for things that you can flag, have lots of humans looking at it and if there are interesting objects then the computers can check on it because scientists say that uh, humans still have a wonderful pattern recognition skill that not even the best computers have quite gotten to yet.
0: Soon. Yes. Oh God, so I, ho- I hope not. Certainly in is coming. specific domain areas. <laughs> uh,
1: but you know, you bring up
0: the, the citizen scientist uh, concept is I feel like it's not new at all. And, of course, the first people involved with rockets were amateurs and, and uh, amateur amateur scientists who were very professional in their amateurism were always a big part of it. But I feel like that's uh, grown in recent years. Uh, and I was thinking about the IC3 um, satellite recapture, which right. is a you know, NASA mission that uh, satellite was put into a parking orbit, essentially, and it came back around and NASA let citizens, you know, uh, the first time this has ever happened, yeah, regain it.
1: They turned... Uh basically a burger restaurant into uh converted that into their mission control yeah
0: i think that is that a moffett field i forget it's down in san francisco <laughs> yeah and they but they installed equipment in arecibo so they could talk to it and ultimately it was unsuccessful because they were able to do some mm. firing of the rocket and and get it started up and they couldn't recapture it but that that was one of the most exciting things it uh, almost feels like a tv
1: movie um mm-hmm. uh, and it's a partial success i mm-hmm. mean uh, the the people who did ic3 would probably say you know we were able to recover uh, what we did—it's and yeah. amazing—and we learned a lot.
0: They got telemetry back, and yeah. uh, I mean, they mm-hmm. fired a rocket, and it turned out there was—I think there wasn't enough fuel left that it, uh, uh, it operated in space. But, but
1: what a great endeavor!
0: Yeah, but I wonder—are we in an age where um, people, you know, think about CubeSats, which I've studied quite a bit too—is—is is they're not affordable yet for an individual to launch, but they're getting there. I know people building CubeSats or building kits, waiting for the the uh, to become affordable. To launch, or there's a high school. I think there's two high schools now. One launched there's in November 2013. It didn't reach orbit. Or reached orbit did not fire up. Unfortunately, it didn't uh, go live. But um, but a high school put a satellite into low Earth orbit. Are we entering an age in which there's more of a
1: place for citizen scientists or amateur science? Well, the easy answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the next step is to have. CubeSats used as interplanetary probes. Mm -hmm. Get a little propulsion on your CubeSat and and send it off to Jupiter, and pretty soon a university team is going to be able to do some interplanetary science. NASA has, as you know, uh, programs to try to promote innovative uses of CubeSats. Well, there's two going up to Mars Uh, in 20...
0: Right. Which is new. It just got announced there'll be two CubeSats that are launched from a rocket that'll launch a bigger satellite, and they'll just be... Pushed mm-hmm. out They'll there, be
1: dropped off on mm-hmm. the way. Yeah. But
0: this brings us. I mean, we get back to Pluto too. Is um, one of the issues about uh, uh, exploration beyond very close to Earth is uh, is it, batteries or power, solar power, uh, nuclear um, supported power, and radios. I mean, those are the limiting factors. You might be able to build everything else in the world, but you still have to wait to, have to wait to pick it up. So you know, Pluto is it's so far away, and yet we can still get information back, mm-hmm. even though it's at a trickle. Mm-hmm. Um, these seem like fundamental limitations for anything that we do. Is physics, will, physics is right, going to win there. Right.
1: You could probably have another hour show on uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, plut- plutonium power, uh, how plutonium is helping get uh, new horizons to Pluto, and it helped get the Cassini probe in operation around Saturn, uh, and what's the future of that going to be. It's very much in doubt right now, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it does illustrate how... Uh, new technologies uh, have to empower uh, new forms of exploration.
0: Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that seems to, uh, a lot of uh, the missions that are planned, including human powered uh, or a return to human space flight, require things like plutonium that we don't make in the same quantities that we used to. Um, uh, these all seem like they might be in danger of not happening. From what seems like a good thing, we stop making nuclear weapons, uh, or stop, you know, making new nuclear weapons at the scale, but it's going to it could endanger the whole um, space program beyond Mars, or maybe Jupiter,
1: mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. seems like. Right, right. The outer planet's uh, exploration is really uh, something that is... people have wondered what the next step is going to be. And now it appears that the next step is going to be Europa. I know mm-hmm. that this is a show about Pluto, but uh, there's so much going on with uh, Europa as well, in terms of uh, could it harbor a liquid ocean, could it harbor life. But getting back to Pluto, Mm -hmm. there's some talk about that possibility too, that perhaps Pluto or Charon has some way, because of tidal forces, to have reservoirs of liquid water. That's one of the things that they want to look at. It's a low percentage shot, but it's the sort of thing that would be a real revelation that New Horizons could allow us to, to... latch on
0: to. Well that's what I think is interesting about uh, the, the moons of uh, like Enceladus and uh, Europa and there's all this interest in the moons of Saturn and Jupiter now uh, and that in an environment which is you know, very distant from the sun and seemingly previously thought to not be able to harbor life like well maybe it could be and then Pluto could fall into that category of Sharon, Charon into that category as well and suddenly it feels like suddenly we're not having to look for life on other planets, or outside our solar system, mm-hmm. extra solar mm-hmm. system planets, but we might be able to find it in multiple places in our own solar system. That would change, I think, our conception of who we are.
1: Yeah, could be.
0: Not could as be.
1: unique as we were, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, some people say there's a difference between microbes and little green men, that microbes, uh, people wonder whether that's going to have a big effect. They'll, they'll say, ah, big deal. Some bugs, some alien bugs. Uh, but that sounds like the start of a science fiction apocalyptic uh, movie you know all of a sudden uh, you know the the population of earth is decimated because of some bug from europa that's brought back
0: but any kind of life i mean any sort of life would tell us that what happened here is not unique and i Mm -hmm. think the calculations say it's not unique but being able to have actual example of it would be Mm -hmm. um be profound uh, so Pluto very far from the Sun. What does Three billion miles. what does the Sun look like on Pluto? What is compared to what we say? See and actually, on Earth. Uh,
1: well, the Sun is just a little dot in the sky, but uh, there's a cool uh, interactive that is making the rounds called Pluto time and oh. uh, you get it on your mobile phone and you find out what time of day the uh, sunlight hitting your place on Earth is analogous mm-hmm. to the amount of sun that hits Pluto at noon, and it's usually uh, maybe a little bit after sunset. And so, if you if you do a search oh. for Pluto time, download it, you can yeah. see what it would be like to to be on Pluto. Except that you've got a nice atmosphere. It's <laughs> nice and warm in the Seattle summer. It's the the. The climate is a little bit
0: different.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the the
0: things that I've learned in the last few years is the extent of the sun's influence outside of visible light, um, out far you know far distant. We just uh, so um, was it 2013? I think it was August 2013 that it was later determined that Voyager one had passed outside of. The, uh, some people say the solar system but I know a lot of people don't like that definition this right, may be right. so at least it passed outside the magnetic influence of the Sun the sun's magnetosphere the yeah. yeah and it's it's so that it, the point at which the charged particles that form the solar wind uh, meet the intergalactic uh, or the uh, what do you call interstellar, it? interstellar medium, medium right yes. so you have a different kind of charged particle mm-hmm. and that's why uh, it was interesting because the science thought there would be um, there would be actual Different magnetic field direction, so they'd be able to tell because Voyager still has a device that can tell the direction of the magnetic field. And they thought the sun was going, sun's uh, uh, heliosphere went one way, and the interstellar medium will be another. And you go boom, and it turned out no, that's not there. It's changing the science. But Pluto is well within, oh, yeah. well within that. So we still have the influence, the influence of the solar wind, influence of the magnetic fields. How does that affect? That planet, that distantly, that
1: dwarf planet. That well, that's a good question. I'd have to think about that. Uh, there could be some interaction of ultraviolet rays uh, to affect uh, what's on uh, what's on Pluto's surface. Uh, the pictures that are coming back already show that Pluto has a mottled surface. It has uh, brown, dark areas. It has more yellowish, uh, light areas. It could be that uh, that solar radiation degrades or affects the the organics that are on Pluto's surface. And when I say organics, I, I don't mean, you know, these are creatures on there. I mean that uh, they're molecules that have carbon in them, like methane. Uh, so uh, yeah, the sun probably does have an effect. Uh, and as I mentioned, Pluto is thought to have uh, weather patterns has clouds in the thin atmosphere uh, dominated by nitrogen, so uh, there's there's a lot of activity that that is going on there. It's not a cold dead world, but it is a cold world. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very yeah, it's very exciting to
0: find out that there's that much going on. I know um, uh, one thing that was discussed recently was the center of gravity in the plutonium oh, yeah. system. Mm-hmm. This somehow. I don't know why this gets people up, up we had some Twitter exchange about this in the last couple of days people get uptight about this if is it a planet if the center of gravity is not on the planet if within a system it's out there that's why is that an issue
1: oh um, because you tend to think of, uh, of a planet or the Sun as as kind of staying in one place and then other things go around it well that's not really the way it works that there there are lots of gravitational interactions in fact uh, the the sun moves around a little bit because of the gravitational influence of Jupiter. You know, Jupiter. Uh, the sun has a big influence on on Jupiter, but Jupiter has an influence on the sun as well. It's just that the sun is so much bigger that uh, that you don't see it. And in fact, that wobble of of the sun in other star systems. That's how people detect planets. Is that they can see how much that Sun is wobbling back and forth because of the way that the characteristics of the light change and they can work out the math to figure out how big is the thing that is pulling um, on the Sun. So Pluto uh, has a very uh, special situation with regard to Charon, the biggest moon, uh, that uh, Charon is about 50% as wide as as Pluto and maybe an eighth of, of the mass and so Uh, So Pluto and Sharon mutually pull on each other and uh, if you look for animated GIFs or uh, YouTube videos of Pluto and Sharon moving in space you'll see that there's this kind of complex dance where Pluto is going around Sharon a little bit just as Sharon is going around Pluto and so the center of gravity is the point where both those bodies are, it's the still point in the turning uh, planetary system. And so in Pluto's case, that very center, that center of gravity, is actually outside the surface of Pluto. And that's what gets people all hot and bothered. That, that some people say, oh, it can't be a planet because, uh, because they're moving back and forth, uh, that uh, Pluto is not totally in control, it's not totally the still point. Uh, and other people say, "Oh, this shows that Pluto and Charon are a double planet system. Mm-hmm. They're the first double planet system that we've been able to observe." I think uh, I think it's interesting. I I don't have a big I don't get all uh, upset about whether it's a double planet system or what. I think that you should call Charon a moon of Pluto because Pluto is kind of the dominant object in that little neighborhood but uh, if you want to call it a double planet, as far as I'm concerned, that's fine. And I think that astronomers understand that this is a very interesting and complex system.
0: It's got a a very complicated set of orbits with the the moons, right? I think I was seeing some animation that it's not just nice little ellipses around things, but there's an
1: incredible dance going on, isn't there? Well, uh, it's the usual dance that you would associate with with Mm -hmm. having that sort of gravitational pull. So I, I imagine if you look at it, In a very detailed way, you would be able to work out how the outer moons uh, are affected by the mutual gravitational attraction of of Pluto and Mm Charon. Pluto has an interesting history, too, uh, that people have determined that, like Earth, Pluto was slammed very early in its existence by another object out there, and kind of smashed things to bits, and then the Pluto, what they call proto-Pluto, was able to come back together again, and uh, that struck off Sharon and the other moons. And so uh, people may not realize that that's something similar to what happened with our Earth and the Moon, is that there was a big Mars-sized object that slammed into Earth, and that collision struck off the Moon, and that's how the Moon was formed in the... Area that it
0: was. It seems like we're in a uh, pretty quiet period in the solar system. I realize like there's that there's that thing about um, what is it? Uh, not human centric, but it's uh, like uh, uh, anthropocentric view of the right. world. Uh, anthropic which is like, principle. Yeah, where it's mm-hmm. like we're in a point. You know, the cosmic radiation is pretty small. We're passing through the gradient. Uh, you know, we're not having uh, co- uh, asteroids hit us all the time. There's not a lot of debris. Like feels like we're in a blessed quiet period but this is unusual isn't it or or are we in a long period so it's not unusual that uh that things are relatively quiet
1: well i think the anthropic anthropic principle just says that uh, the conditions are right so that we could have hairless apes talking about why the conditions are right (laughs) in in that sense it uh, we are in a quiet period but uh but hopefully we can keep it that way. <laughs> yes. Well, that's some, some more uh, uh,
0: comet defense missions uh, that we need. Some right, science right. fiction made oh, real. Uh,
1: we should mention that today is Asteroid Day. It also. is. Yeah, that's so that's a day. It's the anniversary of the 1908 Tunguska explosion <laughs> uh, over Siberia that flattened, you know, millions of acres of oh, uh, my trees guess. in Siberia. And so this is a day that, that was set aside to try to call attention to uh, defending the planet. From uh, potentially threatening near-Earth objects, and so uh, we're kind of like a double planet. It's kind of like a double holiday we're we're getting into: asteroid day and Pluto day. Well, I'll, I'll
0: bring you a little closer to Earth, but I think it I think it actually has an impact. Before we started talking that we're talking about all the different orbital uh, launch platforms there are now. There's a lot of private companies involved, and there's you know Russia still has a uh, it's got its presence, uh, although using some, many cases, older rockets, and it's making this with the series, they launch a lot of stuff up there, and um, there's new companies coming online, lots of variation, but you know, space elevators, there's an annual space elevator conference in Seattle, mm-hmm. and it's going on for years. This is the coolest thing in the world, no idea how practical it is, but every year we get more material science, we get closer to it, in terms of being able to put more missions up there to the outer planets to fight asteroids, to uh, mine the uh, mine the moon, or whatever we're going to do, mm-hmm. mine Mars. Uh, you know, ha- uh, uh, I know this is a little off-base, but space elevators, do you feel like that is going to be a future practical thing, or is it so science fiction we just need to improve how we uh, boost stuff up from Earth?
1: Yeah, uh, space elevators, as you probably know, is an idea that has been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. One of the proponents was Arthur C. Clarke and uh, his famous statement is something to the effect of, the space elevator will be built 15 years after people stop laughing. And, <laughs> and so, uh, people are starting to stop laugh, laughing, uh, and, but in terms of the space elevator, this is the idea that you put something on a big long tether, and you're able to uh, have, uh, have things go up and down this tether, and be able to transfer them to deep space from from wherever. Uh, and, nowadays, people don't talk about that so much with Earth, but they talk about that as a possible technology for lunar uh, oh, development, oh, no. that, uh, that you don't have a, this messy atmosphere that you need to deal with on the moon, and, and uh, it's a smaller gravitational field. So uh, you might have robots uh, digging up helium-3 on the moon and then shipping it up the space elevator oh. for, for shipment back to Earth. That's an exciting oh, idea. I think that that, that could work. Uh, I think it could be pretty darn expensive, and there might be less expensive ways to do the same thing, but uh, it's intriguing.
0: Yeah, well, that seems to be the, the thing, though. It's very expensive to get stuff to space, and hopefully and it is getting cheaper. It's definitely mm-hmm. cheaper. I was doing some research oh, last year, and the costs have gone down. They don't go down as fast as, uh, you know, computational power increases, let's say. but um, And so getting people up to space is harder than getting uh, powerful robots or powerful computers because right. they're smaller and faster. Um, but uh, in terms of exploring things like uh, Pluto or the Kuiper Belt or beyond, it seems like, um, you know, being able to send one thing out every 30 years is not ideal, um, no. how do we move to a faster cadence for getting things into space?
1: Well, I think the issue is, uh, as Douglas Adams once said, space is mind-bogglingly <laughs> big. You, you have no idea how big it is. I brought some props here uh, that I'll, I'll talk to the podcast audience about. Uh, if you think about the sun as uh, as as tall as a seven-story building, then <laughs> Earth is about the size of a basketball, and I have a basketball here, and uh, Mercury, uh, the closest planet to the sun, is about the size of a softball, and uh, our moon is about the size of a baseball, and then I have this squash ball? <laughs> it's, it's, racquetball a racquetball. Racquetball? it's a racquetball. It's a ball. Actually, it's a handball. Oh, oh. So a uh, racquetball might be the size of Eris, for example, mm-hmm. but uh, a rac- uh, handball is the size of Pluto. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you think about how far away these things are. Now, uh, if you've got the sun in the center of Seattle, uh, this basketball-sized Earth would be, oh, a couple miles away. You know, Maybe, maybe you would have to go as far as uh, the I-90 bridge to, to get to it. But in order to get to the handball-sized object, you'd have to drive down to Olympia or farther. And so it's just the distances involved that that really make it hard to explore the outer planets and, and beyond in terms of sending stuff there. Now, there's an interesting development with the solar sail that mm-hmm. uh, Planetary Society had this mission uh, just a few weeks ago where they sent up a solar sail on a CubeSat. It was folded up and then it was unfolded uh, when it was deployed into orbit, that it actually went up on an Atlas V with Mm the X-37B super secret space plane that the Air Force (laughs) was working on. And so this solar sail flew as a secondary payload, pretty cheap, uh, and uh, they were able to deploy it. They couldn't go solar sailing because the orbit was too low. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got too much of that messy atmosphere in the way. But if you can get it up uh, maybe 600 miles, 800 miles, then you're starting to talk about an area where you could use the pressure of photons from the sun to steer the sail around and actually propel it out toward the far reaches of the solar system and beyond. And so if you can get some of these innovative technologies where you don't have to rely on having all this fuel that goes up with the uh, with the spacecraft, that might be a way to kind of break through. What would you call it? Uh, break through the vacuum ceiling. Yeah. And uh, and really revolutionize uh, our ability to to go perhaps to other stars. You could take a solar sail and you could shoot laser beams at it and uh, propel it so that it kept going, even beyond the influence of the Sun, perhaps. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's a, we're at a funny point in Space Exploration too, which is, um, in fact, I wrote an article about this a few months ago, in that there's this huge gap coming up where we'll have no missions beyond Mars uh, after, uh, so the next year, uh, we get some. Uh, uh, the InSight lander lan- uh, launches next year. And then we have, uh, so we have uh, what do we got? we've got? It's, there's, there's, two, a, uh, there's, a there's a rover year-
1: mission coming up in 2020.
0: Right, for uh, for Mars for Mars right. Yeah. But after but to uh, Jupiter, there's a, a European Space Agency mission that's slated for the late twenty twenties, and then there's the Europa mission that NASA is now pushing. It was it was likely, but I think they went through just recently another step where they said now it's pretty much on the roadmap. But that's like arrived twenty twenty eight, I think twenty twenty nine. Right. Um, but we've got nothing that's going to be in the um, outer planet. Uh, 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 Cassini is about to plunge. And hit Saturn. Um, mm-hmm. We'll have the Kuiper Belt flyby of uh, New Horizons. Um, we've got uh, wait, what's there's one of the Juno, not Juno. Uh, Juno at Jupiter. Yeah, and then uh, after 2017 or so, nothing until about 2028, 20, uh, maybe. Um, it's
1: a big gap. For the outer planets. For the outer uh, planets, right? Mars is
0: going to right Mars yeah. every year or so. Mars gets a strong hands. Yeah. Well, they can get stuff. It's easier to reach it. You get a lot of information back. There's a bunch of robots. The only pl- other planet occupied in the solar system, and it's full of robots. It's the robot run <laughs> planet. Um, but this seems troubling that, uh, I mean, I know a lot of it stems with budget, it's not lack of yeah. will, mm-hmm. but um, I mean, does it bother you that we're not going to get new science from those areas for an extended period of time and that we don't um, necessarily have a roadmap
1: for what happens uh, even sure, after I'd that? Like to see, I'd, I'd like to see more missions. It, it takes a long time to develop these missions and so there was kind of a hiatus there, so there's there's a long pipeline to really get a planetary mission like this mm-hmm. this going. But the interesting frontier for, for space exploration is actually g- going to be in a couple of areas. You talked about CubeSats and, and the ability to, to rapidly develop space missions and fly them. Uh, there's a company here in Seattle called Planetary Resources that is hopes to be turning out little space telescopes and start checking out near-Earth asteroids and look if, if somebody can make a trillion dollars uh, harvesting uh, metals and, and water from asteroids. And then there's the ground-based telescope uh, revolution, uh, where uh, a lot of folks are working to put ground-based telescopes with a lot more capability. Uh, Pan-STARRS is is one. There's the uh, large uh, synoptic uh, telescope uh, in Chile. And uh, there's a controversy over the 30-meter telescope that people want to build in Hawaii. Uh, yes. The whole the Native Hawaiians are saying uh, this is a sacred mountain. Enough of this, mm-hmm. and so that's something that has to be has to be worked out. But um, uh, the James Webb is going to go. The that's uh, that's is, the uh, that's over right.
0: budget, mm-hmm. um, but very very capable, and but that's 2018, 2018 so, 2019. Yeah. and that'll be Hubble's essentially its replacement, right? Or it'll be it's its enhancement sort of
1: telescope. Mm-hmm. It's uh, very much uh, very much an infrared mm-hmm. uh, observing telescope, and so uh, yeah. That, that will be a big deal. Oh, every spe- every oh, Everything okay. that NASA is doing mm-hmm. now, they say, oh, we're going to be able to do this so much better with the James Webb Telescope. Is it focused primarily on infrared? I don't think I knew that at all. Yeah, it is. Interesting. It is because when you're looking far, mm-hmm. far away, a lot of things get shifted toward, mm-hmm. toward the red part of the spectrum. And uh, it's also uh, a good part of the spectrum to use to look for, uh, for example, for extrasolar planets or uh, other other phenomena that they're interested mm-hmm. in in pushing the frontier, but there are also some uh, Some folks who say you really need to have something that that uh, has more visible light capability yeah. uh, And one there are a couple of telescope proposals in the works. One is called FIRST uh, Which is an acronym uh, that I can't you know, <laughs> I can't parse right now, but but that uh, you know, there are more missions that are on the drawing board. Whether they get turned into reality, depends on what kind of budget uh, NASA gets. Another one would be the terrestrial planet finder. Mm. I was writing about the terrestrial planet finder a decade ago and it's never gotten built, but people keep talking about how you want to put uh, an array of telescopes in space that are sensitive enough to detect what's in the atmospheres of alien planets. And so there's a little more of an upswing in talking about those sorts of things. Another mission called TESS uh, which is going to look for uh, planets that uh, that may be nearby uh, that it it complements the Kepler mission which recently kind of went into less active phase. It's still working, but it uh, had some technical difficulties. And so it's not as capable as as it used to be. But the people who are behind the Kepler mission Including Sarah Ballard, our friend, yeah, that's right. Local. Uh, has been will be here uh, on, has been working on uh, Kepler data and will continue to do so for probably several more years.
0: She'll be here in is it August? Uh, yeah, so August. We'll be talking to her about exoplanetary yeah. science. Tune in for that. That's right. Well, so let me ask you this. I think we should take a, a break for a moment here. Some people have been sitting here for an hour. So, we'll, uh, but let me ask you before we take a break, and then we'll come back for for questions. Is uh, uh, we study planets, other planets, partly for the pure joy of it, for the r- thrill of exploration to increase the scientific knowledge. but we also study it because it teaches us about ourselves, teaches us what's close to home. Uh, one scientist I talked to talked about the notion that uh, uh, planetary scientists who said um, uh, we learn things from other planets because other planets tend to be or other, in moons and so forth, um, whether in our solar system and, and eventually elsewhere they tend to be more specific. Earth has a bunch of stuff going on all in one place. And when you can study systems in isolation, you can learn more things about them. <clears throat> so given that as maybe a, as a precept, um, what can we learn from Pluto about ourselves? What, what do you think New Horizons may tell us in the next couple of weeks and then
1: the year after that as we get more information? Wow. My my mind is blown by that question. So uh, <laughs> it I,
0: comes I, from a smarter person might, than me. Let me we you.
1: might have to come back to that after the break. Okay. But uh, I think in terms of how a planet is put together, and um, and uh, what are the parameters of of a planet? How crazy can can a planet get? And uh, what are the uh, possibilities for for having. Uh, having activity going on in a very extreme environment. Uh, we have, we do have quite a few extreme environments here on Earth, uh, not as cold as Pluto, not as dim as the light hitting Pluto, but, but pretty cold and pretty dim, and, uh, and life can be sustained in those areas. And so uh, how do those environments work? And uh, how do we, uh, how, how, how are planets put together? How, how did our planet come to be the way that it was? By studying other planets, you, you kind of know how how the system works. So it's not going to uh, lead to a better mouse trap. And uh, maybe the practical application, you'd have to look a little harder to, to find it for the Pluto mission. But I will tell you one thing, that the technical capabilities that went into creating the New Horizons probe are really quite revolutionary. They were forced to come up with uh, Instruments that were miniaturized and, and able to be very capable in uh, not a very big space and not costing very much money It's about seven hundred and twenty million dollars for the Pluto mission and that sounds like a lot of money But when you talk about sending something three billion miles away and having it work uh, that, That's a that's a pretty good deal in contrast, what Curiosity was over two billion was that scale, yeah. but it just had it just had to go to Mars.
0: It just had to do the seven minutes of ter- terror and
1: land on Mars and uh, work for three or ten or how many yeah. years without a mechanic. Yeah, it's a pretty. It's had a, Curiosity is one of the most successful uh, missions
0: sent, I think, because so little has gone wrong.
1: Yeah, and uh,
0: so far, same with New Horizons. Well, let's um, let's take a break and uh, get some food. If you want to get Alan to sign a book. He's here, and then we'll just come back in a few minutes, and we'll uh, we'll do questions. Yeah, great.
1: Thank
0: Thanks. you, all. Um, it's nice that it's not just about Pluto. People. people have questions. Questions about things? Questions about Pluto? Anybody have? I can ask all kinds of questions if you don't have questions.
1: Uh, could you kind of define the uh, distance from, say, here to the Earth to Jupiter to Pluto to the Kuiper Belt to the Oort Cloud to the next star? Boy oh boy, I'm, yeah. gonna, have to, uh, I'm gonna have to get my dictionary out. We'll have to uh, repeat, the, repeat the question. Oh yeah. it up what's the, uh, the dist- question is uh, scale of yeah. distance. Uh, what, how far away are things, whether it's Earth or Mars or Jupiter uh, or Pluto <laughs> or Neptune or the Oort Cloud or the nearest star? And the best uh, unit of measure to use for that is something called astronomical units. Uh, one astronomical unit is the distance between Earth and the sun. And uh, that's, of course, 93 million miles or about 150 kilometers. And so the distance from Earth to the sun is one. <laughs> uh, <and> A little <laughs> anthrocentric there. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> and when you're talking about uh, Jupiter, I think it's around five astronomical units and when you're talking about Pluto it's around 30 to 50 astronomical units because uh, Pluto is in a more elliptical orbit and so uh, there are some points we recently went through a period when Pluto was closer to the Sun than than Neptune was and, and uh, so 30 to 50 and then when you're talking about the Oort cloud that's when things get uh, that's when things get kind of fuzzy people talk about maybe it's Ten thousand uh, astronomical units. Maybe I've heard it's, uh, fifty, fifty thousand. Fifty, 000. fifty
0: thousand could be the limits of the earth of the sun's gravity, right? right. The gravitational pull would abate. Hundred
1: thousand. A lot know, of space. You, there's a big question mark. <laughs> you know, Oort cloud is really terra incognita. Uh, and then uh, when you talk about how far the Oort cloud is, you kind of switch your frame of reference and, and you say that the Oort cloud could go out. As far as halfway to the nearest star. Well, and if yeah. you
0: look at like what's the f- and the nearest star is something
1: like four light years. Probably. Yeah,
0: and if you if you take a what's the 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 most distant uh, humanity created thing, it's Voyager One, and it's uh, under 200 AU, I think, still something I in that so, range. Yeah. And so and mm-hmm. then you say, okay, so what if the Earth cloud is 10,000 AU yeah, away? Voyager's been going out. The Voyager had earlier technology. Potentially, there could be future technology that would allow more. A continuous acceleration for longer periods of time mm-hmm. or something, but still, uh-huh. it's a fair piece.
1: Another way to look at it, I, I, I mentioned that the nearest star is somewhere around four light years away, so it takes four years for a light beam to get from Proxima Centauri to Earth, and so when you're talking about how far New Horizons is, that's 4.5 hours away, and so a signal from New Horizons takes 4.5 hours to get to Earth, so... Space is mind-bogglingly big. (laughs) (laughs) Questions? We have questions. You mentioned the uh, long-term project that is something like New Horizons. Not only that it launched 10 years, but then everything that goes into making a mission like that happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was
0: wondering if you could talk just a little bit more about that process. I'm just interested in uh, this idea of multiple teams Spanning maybe two or three different decades, working together towards the same mission, the results of which some of those people may not see. The right,
1: frame. right. The question has to do with the time frame that's involved in planning a mission like New Horizons, and uh, really it went back to 1989, where uh, this gang of uh, planetary scientists who were interested in the outer regions of the solar system got together and really thought that uh, it would be good to, to have a mission to this place that no one has, has seen before. Another angle to this has to do with a postage stamp, that there was a series of postage stamps that uh, the US Postal Service put together around the solar system back around 1994 or so. And so every planet, all of the nine planets at that time, had a postage stamp that was devoted to it. And it said, uh, you know, uh, moon, we t- set foot on the moon, uh, you know, in 1969. And, and we sent a probe to, to Mars in 1976 or whatever. And, and all these planets had the dates where uh, they were uh, explored. And so the last stamp in the series was Pluto. And it said, Pluto. <laughs> Not yet explored. Uh, <laughs> and so that, that got the goat of some of these scientists and they, they kind of picked up the pace to try to try to get, uh, get a mission approved. And there were multiple teams of uh, scientists who had different proposals and they had to kind of scale their expectations back. At some point, they were talking about sending something that would drop off a probe to actually land on Pluto uh, while it went by, but that didn't quite make the cut. And uh, then at some point there's, uh, there's a process known as the Decado Survey uh, where astronomers from around the country get together in committees and they decide what are the coolest, most necessary missions that we want to do in the next ten years. And that forms the planning document for what NASA and, and science officials in the U.S. government uh, decide to do over those ten years. and so. A mission to Pluto and the Kuiper Belt turned out to be one of the top planetary science priorities in the decadal survey, and so that really helped push things along. And uh, so there was a there was a time when, when of course every mission, it seems like there's a time when it's almost canceled but not quite, and it was saved just at the last moment. And of course there is a moment like that for the New Horizons mission as well. Uh, I go into this in my book, The Case for Pluto. I've got a whole chapter devoted to the development of the New Horizons mission. But uh, the principal investigator is a very very active guy, uh, Alan Stern, who who will brook no objections when it comes (laughs) to the importance of Pluto. But he told me that if the IAU had acted before the Pluto mission took off, we might be telling a very different story today. That the Pluto mission might never have gotten done if it had been reclassified and seemingly demoted uh, before the launch of New Horizons. Yeah, the um, the decadal survey, if I remember right, there's the, the, you know the,
0: the budget. It's a tricky thing, right? Because we had we were flush with money, America in particular. America is most of the uh, not not all, but is most of the research beyond you know Earth orbit. There's uh, you know, certainly European Space Agency has missions. They have a smaller budget. Uh, Russia is, uh, in they've got something going to Mars. Uh, China's done some exploration. India. So there's other countries. But Earth spends the most money doing planetary exploration. And um, there's, I think, it's two uh, flagship projects, and then like maybe three or four in a decade, and then maybe three or four smaller ones. And then there's the tinier ones, which they can do you know, every couple years. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you have to figure out where in that... Uh, that budgetary process you get, but there's very little money in relative terms in the space of the last 30 years now for planetary science compared to... I mean, it, all the, the reason we had so much success and so much went out there was we were flush in the Clinton years. Mm-hmm. They increased NASA's budget, they increased planetary science budget, and then it's it's gotten shaved smaller and smaller and smaller, especially with the current interest and focus on on uh, uh, human uh, exploration mm-hmm. uh, coming back to the yeah. forward, Money's been shifted to that. So I think that's one of the reasons why we're not seeing... The same vision uh, for the next decade uh, for outer planetary beyond Mars.
1: Right, right. There has been a trade-off between human exploration and, and space science, and it's it's unfortunate that it kind of pits one part of the space community against the other. Uh, it, it seems as if uh, that controversy has settled down. It was it was pretty serious a couple of years ago, where where there were some protests about how much money was going to go you know, some people thought the James Webb telescope was getting too much money, the other people thought, uh, why should we send humans into space, let's let's send these wonderful robots uh, like the Mars rovers and uh, let them uh, do what they do best and, and rely on that. And But you don't hear so much about those trade-offs anymore, uh, maybe because the agenda is set now, so the people who objected had their opportunity to say their piece and now they're kind of lurking back there and
0: just brooding. <laughs> apparently, uh, I talked to a number of planetary scientists earlier this year, and there was a uh, widespread feeling that uh, there's bipartisan support in Congress for more planetary exploration, that Congress likes it, and that it's actually the Obama administration and NASA administration that de-emphasized it a little bit, but you're seeing the budget creep up a little bit, and may it's, it's not still back. Inflation-adjusted, at its height, but it's moving towards mm-hmm. it, and then that gives them the capability of doing, you know, Europa-style missions right. twice a decade, which mm-hmm. would be uh, very cool. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: other questions about? Yes. Uh, if you ever meet Neil deGrasse Tyson, yes. would you slap him, have dual, anything?
1: <laughs> oh, uh, my my relationship with Neil Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh. He's, he's a lot more famous than I am. But uh, <laughs> but uh, we we. Get along. We, I've interviewed him, of course, written stories about what he's up to, uh, and uh, and he kind of ribs me whenever he has a chance about uh, this Pluto situation. Now he's moved beyond Pluto. You know that <laughs> yeah. he's maybe not so much uh, interested in, in revisiting that uh, that whole chapter. But uh, I remember there was one time I was visiting in New York, and we were at. Uh, we were at a performance at the Brooklyn Academy of Music of uh, uh, kind of an opera uh, based on the life of Kepler. And uh, Neil was one of the, one of the uh, folks who was attending and, and, and speaking at, a, at an event before the opera. And then after the opera, we all, uh, I and my friends, went to this restaurant where we were going to get something to eat. And, you know, it's a 45-minute wait, and we're just kind of standing there. And then Neil and his group come in. They go right over to their table. <laughs> and so we're, we're sitting at, at, at nearby tables, and then Neil comes over, and he tries to get the other people in my group over to his side. <laughs> so we, we had to mix it up a little bit. But uh, it, it's, uh, it's very amicable, and I have to say... Uh, Michael Brown, the Caltech astronomer who wrote the book called uh, 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 How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming, uh, he, he was very kind to, to take a look at the case for Pluto and, and said, if you want to know uh, the argument for Pluto being a planet, read this book, and, and he's been very kind to me and I hope I've been this kind to him. Well, all these things get people to talk about it, right? I mean, there's Absolutely. controversy. It, yeah. You wouldn't, if,
0: if it weren't in good fun. I mean, there's serious. I know there's some serious feelings behind it too. Mm-hmm. But it, but you know, uh, it gets people interested. I know, my, I know, my children have conversations about Pluto because of a controversy, which is great. So you know, then they have to find out, You have to learn. Well, why you is learn, there controversy? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, uh
1: huh. Uh And you know, it, it's not as if there are. Uh, throngs of scientists fighting each other in the hallway (laughs) over this thing. They understand what the situation is. For me, it's more about how the general public perceives Mm -hmm. it and that the perception should be that exploration opens new doors and brings new things into the tent of uh, scientific understanding. Mm -hmm. I I don't like the idea that science is being used as a vehicle to throw things out of the tent. I'm a big tent guy when it comes to planets. You really want to get a fight?
0: People about uh, terraforming Mars versus leaving it in its oh, pristine, yeah. pristine oh, yeah. state. Now that'll uh-huh. get people. Colonizing Mars. Yeah. That's, uh,
1: that's,
0: uh, Inevitable buzz, or not? Yeah, that's a buzzword. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Isn't that uh, is it, uh, uh, Neil, um, or uh, speaking of buzzwords, not Buzz Aldrin, it's Neil. Um, Oh, Buzz uh, Aldrin it, who what is says, it, uh, "Get
1: your ass to Mars."
0: Yeah, it's a, it wants to terraform like as soon as possible. We need a backup planet, folks. And uh, <laughs> Elon start, Musk is start uh, on that bus too. Yeah, the Musk bus. I don't He's, know if I want to be know, a Elon bus. You know, says, like uh,
1: "I want to die on Mars, but preferably not on the way down." <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson wrote the Mars trilogy, love where a big books. part of the book is the political fight between the Reds yeah. and the Greens. Yeah, I love that's the a great series. Terraformists and the anti-Terraformists. Right the the Mars red green blue red blue green Mars uh, trilogy red green, blue, red, green, green blue, blue, blue Mars trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson. There's a really good. It's um, there's Purple Mars, the short story, which is actually pretty chilling. It
0: takes place after the end, but it's actually it brings up a whole new aspect too. Oh. A little
1: Afterward. And then Kim Stanley Robinson wrote a book called Twenty Three Twelve, uh, which takes that story even farther. That Mars. Has kind of a supporting role. It, it's not the lead role uh, in in 2312, but it's at a stage where there is a, a society well developed uh, on Mars, and it's the other planets that are being terraformed. It's. Uh... Yeah,
0: there's a lot of uh, interplanetary transit that takes that doesn't take very long. Strangely, in that book, mm. no. in uh, asteroids. Yes, the, right Ar- asteroids. Ar- Archeologies, I think, right? Something. Yeah, it's a, the future. Uh, other questions? Sorry. Yeah, I was wondering
1: if you could speak a little bit more to the writing of the book, kind of like what drew you to write this and what that process. Uh huh. The question is uh, the writing of the case for Pluto, and uh, it's a pretty interesting story uh, that. I've been science editor at NBC for for quite a number of years, and I covered the controversy, and I was going through my spam folder one day, and there was was an email from uh, a guy at John Wiley and Sons, uh, an editor, who said, hey, uh, we're looking for someone who could write a a book uh, sticking up for Pluto, because they heard that... Michael Brown, the guy that I mentioned, was writing this book called Why, How I Killed Pluto. And they wanted a balancer. They thought, well, if Michael Brown is going to get on TV, maybe our guy can get on TV <laughs> and, and sell That's the brilliant. book. And, and so uh, I was intrigued by that. Uh, once once I figured out that this was not some kook or some Nigerian scam, uh, I, uh, I figured, yeah, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to try to write this book and they said well and we want the book in just a matter of months it was something like October and they said we would like the manuscript completed by the following March because we think that Michael Brown is coming out with this book next year and so we want the timing to coincide with uh, what he's doing so uh, I said okay all right and so I, I just really regimented my writing I took a calendar out and I just put down on a schedule which days I was going to take off from work and how long does it take me to to write uh, x thousand words? You know that uh, every I figured I'm going to have 15 chapters. I, I did an outline and I rigidly stuck to that outline. It's going to be 15 chapters. Uh, I can, each chapter is gonna be 3,000 words because they wanted a book in the 45,000 to 50,000 word range and I can write about 1,000 words a day. And so each chapter is gonna take three days, 15 times three is 45 and so I just marked out 45 days on the calendar and, and tried to do it from there. And wow. if, I, if I fell behind, I would just try to schedule another day off sometime. But that worked out amazingly well that I did get the manuscript in there on time, and uh, Mike Brown's book came out later than they thought, Ooh. so the timing uh, <laughs> didn't quite hit the way they thought it was going to hit, but it, it worked. And uh, I didn't know if I could do that again, uh, because it was a subject that, where I had covered the ground pretty well already, and I didn't need to do much original much additional research I could just kind of go off my notes and if there was somebody that I needed to check with for example there was a guy named Brian Marsden who was kind of the secretary of the International Astronomical Union and it turns out he was a key figure in what happened to Pluto Uh, and so I would just call up Brian and and talk with him to try to get the details on the fly you know Uh, call him up in the morning and then write that into the book in the afternoon Got a question for that. It was I have to go, but it was basically you had all these days for writing. I was wondering where the research was. But you can right, answer that. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. A lot of uh, a lot of uh, checking with books, seeing what other folks had done, mm-hmm. uh, my own notes, uh, like I say, calling calling up people and uh, and uh, just getting getting her done. But uh, again it was a special circumstance seems like there's a good
0: story about every planet's discovery, and uh, my friend Tom Stanage wrote a book about um, the discovery of Neptune or Uranus, I forget which it was now, um, but it's full, it's this great, it's actually part of the Cosmos uh, I think I've series seen too. i I may even have that book It's uh, a great, is it Neptune? Neptune? Or, it is Neptune, yeah, because mm-hmm. it was harder to find, it was It was further out, it was dimmer, mm-hmm. um, and there's, I think Cosmos, I think, has a there's bit There's a really
1: interesting yeah. story about Neptune is that uh, it, uh, it was discovered basically by checking the gravitational influence they figured out the movements of the other planets and they could tell that there was something out there that was influencing all the movements of the other planets and so uh, a French uh, mathematician worked with I think a German astronomer if I'm Mm -hmm. remembering the story right to the the mathematician told the astronomer exactly where to look and by gosh when they looked out (laughs) there there it was and so it was said of this mathematician that he was the first Person to uh, discover a planet with the point of his pen. Ah, well, that's good. So and so that's what that's uh, in in a roundabout way that's how Pluto was found as well. Is that there was this guy named Percival Lowell who was uh, he he was big on the can- canals on Mars thing. He thought that there were people who were building canals on Mars. But another thing that he was into was trying to find Planet X. He thought. Uh, well if they can do it with Neptune I should be able to do it with the next planet and Mm -hmm. so that's why uh, the Lowell Observatory was built to to look at Mars but also to try to find planet X and so Clyde Tombaugh uh, was a young guy uh, who was brought in you know, long after Percival Lowell died to to do work around the observatory, including spending these hours looking at photographic plates, and so that's how he happened to be in the position at the Lowell Observatory to to find Pluto in 1930. There's a question
0: back here. So, uh, before you contacted to write the book, were you pro-Pluto or anything? I was going. Uh, what was? Uh, the is, who, who was you, it? The question oh, yeah. was, where it's Alan pro or anti Pluto? Before I he was pro or, or anti Pluto. <laughs> uh,
1: what, what, what was? it they said about Kerry that uh, he, was, he was? was for was it, before it before he was, before against, he it. was against it. Yeah. So I was against it before I was for it. That uh, I said, okay, it's no big deal. IAU has spoken. Uh, this is the way it's going to be, you know, you, you can quibble with it, but uh, sure, why not? It's, it's not a planet. And so Alan Stern, the guy I mentioned who would brook no uh, aspersions against Pluto, wrote me and, and said, you are totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and he made a pretty convincing case, and that kind of served as the spine for the case for Pluto. And so he did bring me around, and, and I, I mentioned that. In in the book that uh, that was how it came to be that I I felt I could uh, become a defense lawyer for this poor <laughs> planet and, and uh, argue the case for Pluto. Um, next question: What do you think? Um, what do you think we are focusing so much on Pluto but not Charon? Well, uh, why Pluto and not so much on Charon? I think that's going to change. I think that. Now that we're starting to see uh, both planetary bodies, I think that uh, Sharon is, is getting uh, much more loved than it, it used to. And uh, I think the reason why it missed out in the past is because it's just so hard to see those things out there three billion miles away that uh, it wasn't until the 1960s that, that uh, Sharon was even discovered and it was discovered rather indirectly by noticing how how things were changing in the light coming from Pluto because of because Sharon kept getting in the way so if if we knew so little about Pluto we knew even less about Sharon but as I say that's changing people are really intrigued by this dark spot that they're seeing at Sharon's pole and uh, and wondering what that is and so that's going to be one of the big questions for the flyby is uh, what the heck is going on with Sharon.
0: What's the is it Ceres that uh, has the bright spots that are reflecting? Right, Ceres. Are uh, we haven't uh,
1: we haven't really talked too much about yeah. the other dwarf planets, but Ceres is no slouch either. Ceres is the biggest asteroid; it's in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, and it's also the smallest dwarf planet that we know of, and it's a rocky dwarf planet, unlike these ice dwarfs that that uh, we're talking about when we're talking about Pluto. And so uh, the Dawn mission uh, to Ceres uh, arrived in March and has been circling in closer and closer. It's just about to circle closer again. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, are, there are two pretty weird things that have come to light. One is uh, these bright spots. They, they look like alien headlights that are <laughs> shining out from, from the dark uh, in the pictures from Dawn. And they appear to be reflective patches of material. They could be Ice, uh, like a big uh, pond of mm-hmm. ice that is on the surface. Uh, they could be some sort of light material with a lot of salt in it that, for some reason, is highly reflective. The other thing that's come to light in just the past week or so is the pyramid on Ceres. That oh. there is a pyramid-shaped mountain that uh, that has been noticed in uh, in uh, photos uh, from. From uh, the Dawn spacecraft and some of the headlines are saying there's a pyramid on Mars and nobody knows how it got there. <laughs> it's it's a natural formation but it, it's a pretty neat looking shape and, and so we'll probably see more of that kind of thing as the Dawn probe circles closer and closer.
0: And this is the first, uh, I had to make sure to look it up to make sure what the first was, but the uh, the Dawn mission is the first to use an ion drive which is uh, a unique propulsion method that has some real advantages when trying to get into orbit around Just planets. Just Yeah, it's uh, pretty slick, though, because so. I don't know if we, how well it will be used in the future, but, um, yeah, because this, this gets us into that whole pl- that plutonium thing, is that you have to send missions out that are extremely efficient and that can be solar-powered mm-hmm. uh, if you want to get them out sooner and faster, because there ain't much plutonium-238 to go around, which right. is needed for the, mm-hmm. the uh, outer planetary ones. So that's another limit on exploration, is, I mean, we were talking about that before, is the plutonium two thirty eight is the stable, or it's uh, not stable, but it's the isotope that's used for uh, creating radio, th- uh, radio thermal. What is it? Uh,
1: RTGs, uh, radio. Radio isotope, th- uh, thermo- thermal generator. Yeah, which is a R- really cool,
0: it's a really cool thing. You take uh, it's, you take uh, uh, heat from the uh, decay and you turn it into energy. And NASA's working on they suspend it or now. It keeps the
1: spacecraft warm, too. Right,
0: so they have tiny ones for, uh, like Voyager has a few on its uh, in different places to keep fuel flowing and so forth, or you can use it as a power source, um, as they do with Curiosity. Um, so Curiosity charges its batteries overnight from the RTG when it's not in operation uh, because it's too dangerous to operate in the cold Martian night, but then it has a full set of charged batteries. And does not rely on solar like mm-hmm. Opportunity and Spirit, mm-hmm. but that again, that's the limitation. Is if you can put a solar cell, and there's a limitation to how big a solar panel can you have. I was talking to scientists not that long ago about um, could you go to Saturn on solar, because it was seen before. Maybe you couldn't go to Jupiter. Now there are Jupiter missions planned and a successful one arriving uh, that are totally solar powered. And the European Space Agency won't use. Uh, radiological isotopes uh, at the moment, and maybe ever, so they have to go all solar unless they partner with Russia, which is not making RTGs now, or the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. But so there's thought, maybe we could go to Saturn. I mean, it'd be mm-hmm. a really big
1: solar array, but, right. um, but mm-hmm. it's
0: possible, and Pluto uh, probably not.
1: <laughs> and uh, solar electric propulsion, mm-hmm. uh, where you where is uh, technology that NASA is very interested in, for the asteroid missions where you have solar energy that is soaked up by the, by the arrays but uh, it basically powers an ion drive, it Mm. provides the electric power to, uh, to provide propulsion for the spacecraft. It's all very exciting, this space is great, I'm sorry, so any more, any more questions? I don't know. With RTGs are there other power sources like thorium or? There had been talk, there's been talk about developing different types of uh, radio isotope generators. At one time they were even talking about putting nuclear reactors in space. They're still or, talking uh, about yeah.
0: That might happen again with human power flight. There, little known story, there are actually um, thousands of abandoned RTGs powered by strontium. Uh, Russia put them into power lighthouses Ooh. on the Arctic shore and then forgot about them, left them there Oops. when the Union destroyed <laughs> and so these wash up sometimes in Norway or on, this, on uh, the former Soviet Union shores and uh, only had a 20-something year half-life. So they're not very radioactive, but they're still radioactive. And people mm-hmm. sometimes try to salvage them for metal mm-hmm. um, and get uh, uh, highly uh, it's damaged. Bad. It's bad. Yeah. a bad thing.
1: Yeah. And, and uh, there had been talk about developing new type of uranium power mm-hmm. uh, generator, but uh, that has gone a little bit by the wayside as far as I know.
0: cool thing is the Stirling engine which is an extremely efficient uh, uh, conversion of, through mechanical power of heat into electricity and NASA has restarted its Stirling engine project or will soon uh, and the Stirling engine used in RTG instead of it powering uh, the current RTG systems are like a it's like a metal, con- I forget what it's called, it's a thermocouple or something and it's it's inefficient, it's like 16% efficient, so you lose most of it to heat. Stirling engine is four times as efficient, so you effectively with the limited amount of plutonium that's available, uh, you have four times as much suddenly if you can use a Stirling engine, but it's got actually like um, uh, pistons, uh, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. a sealed environment, and in space it's fine because it's uh, there's no friction either. Kind of
1: like steampunk uh, space <laughs> Just, exploration. Right,
0: and you're like, really? You're going to put pistons into space? And it's like, yeah, it's, uh, it's a great idea. So that may help as well. That'll extend the current supply of uh, 238 and there's a question then i'm sorry there? Yeah. Oh, I, I,
1: I remember reading just recently that one of those solar powered probes had landed somewhere and and it didn't operate for a very long period of time i don't know whether it was months or years but because it landed in the shade oh yeah. so and, a feeling, huh? and a feeling. now it's 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 right. getting sunlight now mm-hmm, that's right he's referring to the rosetta probe and uh, the Philae lander that uh, back in August there was an European uh, spacecraft called Rosetta which caught up with the comet uh, 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko very good uh, and uh, actually in November it sent a little lander uh, you know like uh, the, maybe the size of a toaster oven down to the surface of this comet and the lander transmitted for for a little bit but unfortunately <coughs> as you say uh, it bounced around and it settled apparently in a shadowed area where it couldn't recharge its uh, solar powered batteries and so it ran out of energy and had to go into hibernation. And so that was back in November and just in the past couple of weeks all yeah. of a sudden it perked up again. It, it just sent a, 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 a small amount of data. But it basically said, "Hey, here here I am. (laughs) Seen any good movies lately?" (laughs) So they're trying to. They're hoping that as this comet uh, gets closer to the sun, there will be more sunlight hitting that uh, that lander's uh, solar arrays, and there will be more of a revival. Uh, Right now, they're still trying to trying to work it out. They can't reliably communicate with the probe but there's there's hope that uh this this little lander will have a second act
0: well uh thank you to Aidas for hosting us tonight and alan boyle the author of the case for pluto thank you for coming out and answering all you these bet. questions you pleasure to have here thanks and thank you everybody for coming yep. much appreciated